Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The 2019 Summer Sunday Lecture Series, celebrating the old master collections of the National Gallery of Art, takes a closer look at the many treasures housed in the gallery's permanent collection. Works by Italian, French, Dutch, and American artists are featured in this visual tour. New insights and surprising discoveries await, featuring gallery favorites and recently acquired works. In this third lecture in the series, presented on July 28th, guest lecturer Heidi Applegate discusses the gallery's collection of British paintings, known for its Grand Manor portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough, landscapes by John Constable, and seascapes by J.M.W. Turner. Applegate discusses the history of the collection, paintings that have changed over time, and recent acquisitions by John Martin, Richard Parks Bonington, and John Ward of Hull. Good afternoon, welcome. My name is Heidi Applegate. I am an independent art historian, and for the past two years, I've been giving gallery talks and lectures through the Education Division. This is the third installment in the summer series of afternoon lectures devoted to celebrating the old master collections in the West Building. Today's lecture is focused on British paintings, and I would like to thank Franklin Kelly, Nancy Anderson, and Anne Halpern for their help answering questions about the history of the collection. The British collection was largely assembled by these two men. On the left is Sir Oswald Beerley's portrait of Andrew Mellon from 1933, and on the right is John Singer Sargent's portrait of Peter Widener from 1902. Eric Denker began his Dutch lecture this way, and we can make the same point with respect to the British collection. Mellon and Widener were interested in iconic artists and major representative works from the artists they collected. Mellon gave 20 British paintings with his initial gift in 1937. Widener gave 18 British pictures in 1942, and their works occupy the core of the British galleries. The great strengths of the collection are Grand Manor portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough, landscapes by John Constable, and seascapes by Joseph Turner, the very pictures that Mellon and Widener preferred to hang in their grand houses. The British collection is by no means comprehensive. There are very few works before 1700 and very few after 1850. The works that are currently on view span an even narrower window of about 100 years from the mid-18th to the mid-19th century, the period that I will focus on today. The British section is the smallest of the national sections in the West Building, which was not the case when the West Building opened in 1941. There were even fewer American paintings in the collection back then, but the American collection has grown enormously. This is an early installation view that most likely dates to the 1940s. Three portraits from Mellon's collection filled the south wall of Gallery 56 when the West Building first opened, and those doors into the inner galleries are closed because there weren't enough works yet in the collection to fill all of the galleries. Reynolds' Lady Delmay and her children is in the center, Gainsborough's Miss Catherine Tatton is on the left, and George Romney's Mrs. Davies Davenport is on the right. 
This early installation view is fascinating, mainly because these three portraits, along with additional portraits in a landscape by Gainsborough, are all hanging in Gallery 56. Lady Delmay is where David's portrait of Napoleon now hangs. Gallery 56 was annexed by the French during the reinstallation of the permanent collection that was undertaken in celebration of the gallery's 15th anniversary in 1957. And I'm grateful to Shannon Morelli in the gallery's archives for finding these early installation views and also for determining when Gallery 56 ceased to be British. This is another early installation view, and it probably dates to 1962 or later, which was the first time when Reynolds' portrait of John Musters was hung in 58. The Hopner children is on the adjacent wall, and the portraits are interspersed with landscapes from the Widener collection. Also notice the table there next to the couches. The words on the sign attached to the box are not legible when you zoom in, unfortunately, so I can't tell for sure if those are information sheets identifying the paintings. There are nameplates on most of the frames, but you'll notice there are no wall labels. Today, there are 38 paintings on view in the four galleries devoted to the British collection. This compares to 315 Italian paintings, 260 French paintings, 208 American paintings, and nearly 200 Dutch and Flemish paintings. The British section begins off the Central West Corridor in Gallery 57. And these three landscapes by John Constable are what you now first see as you enter the British galleries. Constable never left England, and so perhaps he is the best artist suited to represent the national landscape. Constable painted this plein air sketch of Salisbury Cathedral on a summer evening. The sunlight that breaks through the massive row of trees lining the avenue on the left side of the painting casts shadows from the west across the expanse of grass in the lower third of the composition. The wide, unblended strokes in the foreground record the movement of Constable's brush across the canvas. The location of the paintings has changed over time, not surprisingly, but the surface of Constable's white horse has also changed dramatically. It is a different painting today from the one seen in the installation view from the 1960s on the right. The white horse in the gallery's collection on the left is not a finished painting. It is a full-size oil sketch for one of the artist's first large-scale landscapes. The finished version on the right is now part of the Frick Collection in New York City, and it was first exhibited in 1819 at the Royal Academy and was the beginning of a series of works that famously became known as the Six Footers because of their grand size. The scene is a view from the south bank of the River Store in the countryside around Suffolk, England, where the artist was born. The barge in the lower left corner is carrying a horse from the towpath on the near side of the river to the opposite bank. Hidden beneath the gallery's sketch for the white horse is a version of another constable painting, a view of the valley of the store. This is the sketch from the Victoria and Albert Museum, and you can see traces of the general composition in the X-radiograph of the gallery's painting on the right. Constable reused the canvas and painted over the scene to create the sketch for the white horse. So until recently, it was three paintings in one. 
The painting that you see today was once covered by paint added by someone other than Constable over a century ago, perhaps in an effort to make it look more finished. Through microscopic examinations and painstaking analysis, conservators and scholars were able to identify the multiple layers of paint on the canvas. It took five years to clean this painting from 1992 to 1997, but Constable's loose brushwork turned out to be well-preserved. The painting was also reframed before it was rehung as the opening picture for the British galleries. Constable's Wivenhoe Park from 1816, another painting from the Widener Collection, is a portrait of the private estate of General Rebo, who commissioned the painting. The house is a central element in the painting, but removed into the distance and obscured on one side by trees. Rebo wanted Constable to include his daughter Mary, and so Constable added about three inches of canvas to the left side in order to put Mary in there driving a donkey cart. And he also added the cow at the far left to help cover the seam in the canvas. He similarly added the fisherman in the boat on the lake to disguise the seam of another three inches added to the right of the original canvas, which allowed him to include the deer house seen in the distance at the far right behind a figure surrounded by dogs at the edge of the lake. Both seams are still visible if you look closely at the painting today. Turner, who is the other artist featured in the first room of the British section, traveled extensively. He painted the sea more than any other subject. The sea was an important national subject for Great Britain, an island nation that established its imperial might through the strength of its navy. The first oil painting that Turner submitted to the Royal Academy in 1796 was a seascape, and his early success on the London exhibition scene came from his dramatic seascapes. In these two paintings, the sky, and more specifically, the sunlight breaking through storm clouds, is as important as the sea in conveying expressive power. Turner achieved great commercial success, as all six of his paintings currently on view demonstrate. Half were commissions, the other were purchased from his London studio or immediately after exhibition at the Royal Academy. The junction of the Thames and the Medway from 1807 depicts the location where the wide mouth of the Thames and the smaller river Medway both join the North Sea. The town on the far shore is the seaport and dockyard of Sheerness. Turner made changes to the fishermen in the rowboat. The figure in the stern, now leaning over, most likely losing the contents of his stomach, was originally seated with his back to us. Another figure rowing was painted out, and the figure at the bow initially faced us. The seasick figure heightens the sense of the turbulence in the water and the struggle of the men to avoid being overtaken by the waves. The relentless power and danger of the sea was a recurring theme in Turner's seascapes. This is Rotterdam Ferryboat, painted in 1833, and it is the only painting in this first gallery that was not a gift by Andrew Mellon or Widener. This picture was given to the gallery in 1970 by Mellon's daughter, Elsa Mellon Bruce, seen on the right in the portrait of her by Philip Laszlo that is on view in the Founders Gallery. 
Turner traveled to Holland five times. The Dutch warship and the skyline of Rotterdam, the low horizon line and windswept clouds demonstrate the influence of other 17th century Dutch artists, Jan van Goyen and Albert Kaup in particular, on Turner's work. It is as much a cloudscape as a seascape. But Turner's paint surface is very different from the Dutch works in the collection. The thick white in the sky was applied with a palette knife to suggest intense sunlight hitting the clouds. Turner also used thick impasto, paint that is so thick that it is raised up from the surface of the canvas, for the light hitting the corner of the sail of the ferry boat, the sail of the ship in the distance, the distant buildings of Rotterdam, the white caps of the choppy water, and for the water as it crashes against the ferry boat. The ferry boat is in danger of being overcome with water, and the woman in the middle of the boat holds her children close. This next painting was a commission for William Moffat, who owned a house overlooking the Thames in the fashionable London suburb next to the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew. Moffat commissioned two paintings from Turner. On the left is the earlier painting that is now in the Frick Collection in New York, and it is a morning view of Moffat's house seen to the east. In the National Gallery picture on the right, the view is from inside the house, and we are looking west into the powerful blinding evening sunlight that seems to be melting the stone parapet. The flag-decked barge is identifiable as belonging to the Lord Mayor of London, and the black dog that is barking at the boats was a last-minute addition to add an element of dark contrast to the intense light at the center of the painting. Just before the Royal Academy show opened in 1827, Turner cut the dog out of paper, stuck it onto the wet varnish, and touched it up with highlights and a collar. The parasol there to the left of the other dog was also thought to be a collage element, but it is in fact just thick paint. When this painting was exhibited at the Royal Academy, it was criticized for being too yellow. One critic said that Turner's, quote, pertinacious adherence to yellow, end quote, made everything in the painting appear to be afflicted with jaundice. Another said that Turner's, quote, yellow fever was getting worse with every exhibition and would soon be fatal to his reputation, end quote. This painting was done about eight years after Turner's first trip to Venice, where his perception of the physical world was profoundly changed by the unique light and atmosphere of Italy. Turner made at least four trips to Venice. This work was a product of his second trip in 1833. Turner had long been interested in the fate of great empires, Carthage, Rome, Venice. The enlarged figure of fortune over the Dogana, with the detail there at the right, the customs house, helps to emphasize the prosperity of Venice that came from its trade. The painting was a commission from a British textile manufacturer, and Turner creates a symbolic salute to Venetian commerce, but also to his patron by including boats laden with fabric, among other goods. Turner took several liberties with the view, pushing the church of San Giorgio Maggiore back in space and making the Grand Canal seem much wider than it really is, which allowed him to include so many boats. The water is still and reflective, an effect Turner produced by using thin brushwork over a thick white ground. The sky is also calm. 
This painting was highly praised at the Royal Academy in 1834. The following year, the same patron commissioned Turner to paint an industrial scene of an English seaport. And Turner painted this picture, Keelman Heaving Coal by Moonlight from 1835. This is a view of the River Tyne near the mining city of Newcastle. Dock workers, known as keelmen, are transferring coal from river barges, or keels, to ocean-going vessels. They are working with the aid of torches by moonlight, which forms a vaulted tunnel of white light in the center of the composition, in contrast to the orange flames and red glow from the torches on the right. On the left, already loaded ships wait to sail out on the morning tide. Behind these ships, Turner suggested the distant factories of Newcastle and more ships with a few thin lines of gray paint. The paint is very thick in the center of the canvas, under the moon itself, and was applied with a palette knife. Turner also used heavy impasto to depict the moonlight radiating upward in the sky and also for the reflected moonlight in the water all the way down to the lower edge of the canvas. Critical opinion about this painting was divided. One reviewer called it, quote, a failure, end quote. Another that the, quote, flood of glorious moonlight was wasted upon dingy coal whippers, end quote. But one critic praised it, writing, Quote, it represents neither night nor day, and yet the general effect is very agreeable and surprising. End quote. The nighttime scene of hard labor in northern England is a counterpoint to the sunlit scene of Venetians lounging in their gondolas surrounded by luxury goods. Both scenes portray great merchant powers whose wealth depended on shipping. Turner's late work is represented by this painting, Approach to Venice from 1844. This is another melon picture. Turner visited Venice for the last time in 1840, the same year when he met the critic John Ruskin. The full moon shares the sky with the setting sun, and when this painting was first exhibited in 1844, Turner adapted lines from a poem by Lord Byron to include in the catalog. The lines read, the moon is up, and yet it is not night. The sun as yet disputes the day with her. End quote. A flotilla of barges and gondolas makes its way across the lagoon, and the word doge is legible on the barge in the left foreground. Turner again includes a conspicuous boat owned by someone important. The city is almost lost on the horizon line. The Campanile of San Marco is the only identifiable feature that barely emerges from view. This was too much for most Victorian visitors to the Royal Academy, but at least one critic appreciated the atmospheric effects as, quote, a vision of enchantment, end quote. Ruskin was generally a conservative critic. He was the great champion of the pre-Raphaelites, but he also loved Turner. He called this painting, quote, the most perfectly beautiful piece of color of all that I have seen produced by human hands by any means or at any period. End quote. This is another painting in the collection that has changed over time. Initially, there were vivid reds and greens in addition to the yellows that now predominate. The other colors have faded considerably within just eight years of Turner finishing it. Gallery 58 introduces the subject of portraiture with two works by Thomas Gainsborough. 
Mary Shaw, otherwise known as the Honorable Mrs. Thomas Graham from the Widener Collection, is on the left, and Master John Heathcote, a gift from Governor Alan Fuller, is on the right. Gainsborough painted Mary Graham between 1775 and 1777, soon after her marriage when she was about 18 to 20 years old. She died when she was just 34, and her husband was inconsolable, and soon after she died, he put this picture in storage along with a full-length version of her painted around the same time, um, and that one is now in the National Gallery of Scotland. He couldn't bear to be reminded. Gainsborough used a fugitive pigment in her dress, which was originally deep red, yet another picture that has changed dramatically with time. John Heathcote on the right was the great-grandson of one of the founders of the Bank of England, so he was presumably very well off. He was about four or five when he sat for his portrait, and he is set against the backdrop of a loosely painted landscape. Boys wore long frocks as young children, and this is true of our next example as well. This is Sir Henry Rayburn's John Tate and his grandson from around 1793 and then changes made in 1800. John Tate was a writer and a lawyer from a town near Edinburgh. Sir Henry Rayburn was Scotland's foremost portrait painter in the late 18th century, and he painted Tate with his grandson, also named John Tate, and shown here at about age four. He must have just turned four because he looks significantly younger than John Heathcote. A visitor to Rayburn's studio made a copy of this portrait, and in the copy, John Tate Sr. sits alone with a hat in his hand, and the hat is clearly evident in the X radiograph. Rayburn added the child after Tate Sr. died in 1800. The strong light coming from the upper right emphasizes the child's sweet expression of wonder as he plays with his grandfather's watch chain and fob. And in a very strange detail, this is the kind of thing you can't unsee once it has been pointed out, Rayburn inexplicably painted a second right hand for the grandfather, and that hand is the one grasping his grandson's wrist. The portrait of Lady Caroline Howard by Sir Joshua Reynolds has a great story associated with it. Frederick Howard, the fifth Earl of Carlisle, commissioned this portrait of his daughter from Joshua Reynolds in 1778 when Caroline was seven. We don't know if Reynolds asked Caroline to assume the kneeling pose or if he observed her that way and decided to capture her as he was. Reynolds exhibited the portrait at the Royal Academy in 1779, where a critic strongly objected to the informal posture of the sitter. He wrote, quote, she is plucking a rose, but in what attitude we cannot conceive. She seems to be curtsying to the rose bush or to be deprived of the lower parts of her limbs and is a most unpleasing figure, end quote. Mellon did not agree, and when he bought this picture in early 1926, he hung it in his daughter's bedroom. As recounted in Philip Copper's history of the formation of the National Gallery, when Mellon decided to make a gift of his collection to the nation, he did not ask his children which paintings they might want to keep. Here are Paul and Elsa Mellon, roughly age four and age 10, and this is a bit of an 
anachronistic image to be showing you because both Paul and Elsa were much older at the time when Mellon gave his collection to the nation. But I love this image, and I'm going to use it. Paul remembered that Elsa was very upset when she learned that her father was going to give this picture away. And for some time, she hoped to get it back by loan or trade. As Paul Mellon later recounted, quote, Father's explanation of it to me was that he felt very badly about it. But on the other hand, he felt that Elsa especially, and maybe I too, didn't understand that we were creating a national gallery really as a family gift, that it wasn't just a gift from him, but that it was a gift from all of us. And so it is rather wonderful that this group of landscapes hangs on the adjoining wall. The one in the middle was part of Andrew Mellon's initial gift in 1937. On the left is a landscape that Elsa gave to the gallery in 1970, along with the Turner seascape. And on the right, a landscape that Paul Mellon gave in 1983. It was a family project. Elsa and Paul made many gifts over the years, mostly of American and French pictures, and Elsa also made possible the purchase of Leonardo's Ginevra de Benci. Her subsequent generosity was extraordinary, and it all began with Lady Caroline Howard. This is Elsa's contribution to the landscape wall, Thomas Gainsborough's seashore with fishermen from about 1781-1782. Gainsborough was born in Sudbury. He studied art in London. He spent a few years in the town of Ipswich before he eventually eventually settled in Bath, where he became a successful portrait painter. He painted Master Heathcote in Bath. He moved to London in 1774 to paint commissions for the royal family. He painted Mary Graham after his return to London, but he preferred to paint landscapes. Gainsborough painted only few coastal scenes, and this one dates to late in his career after he was living in London. It's not based on a real location. He invented the cliffs at the left. Gainsborough bought a Dutch seascape by Backhausen around the time that he painted this picture. And like Backhausen, Gainsborough creates a turbulent scene. But the composition is also carefully considered and balances opposing forces. The men struggle to launch their boat into the water. The towering cliffs that angle into the composition echo their efforts. The two sailboats indicate the direction of the wind toward the men and the rocks. The towering sunlit cliffs on the left side of the composition contrast with the darker rocks in shadow at the lower right. Those rocks cover two additional figures and an anchor that appear in a study that Gainsborough made for the painting. Gainsborough, like Turner, uses thick white impasto to indicate the spray and the foam of the cresting waves and the water as it hits the boat. There is also a sense of atmospheric perspective that blurs the cliffs and the shoreline in the distance. This painting was most likely never exhibited during Gainsborough's lifetime. It was passed on to his descendants, sold at auction uh, in the early 19th century. And then Paul Mellon's contribution to this wall Uh, is this scene, Moonlight on the Yare, by John Crome from about 1816 to 1817. It's hard to compete with Turner's Moonlight, but this moon, I think, is in the running for the most magnificent moon in the collection. The moon is the most complete and solid form in the entire painting. Crome was born in Norwich. He apprenticed with a sign painter before he began sketching landscapes. He mostly painted scenes in and around Norwich. 
The River Yare runs south of Norwich and flows into the sea at Yarmouth. The exact location of this scene has not been identified. Chrome admired moonlit scenes by Vanderneer, such as the one on the left that is in the Dutch galleries. But he was likely also inspired by Rembrandt's The Mill in our collection, but not currently on view. And it was conveniently owned by a Norwich collector and exhibited twice in London during Chrome's lifetime. So he had seen this painting. Chrome focused his attention on the central part of the painting, the moon and the windmills, uh, and the two lower corners are left unfinished. Hanging next to Chrome's moonlit scene is this enormous work by John Martin, painted in the same year, 1816. This grandiose history painting was acquired in 2004, and it adds something wholly new to the British collection. The subject comes from the Old Testament. Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, is asking God to cause the moon and the sun to stand still so that he and his army will have enough light to finish the epic battle already underway. Martin is sometimes referred to as the Cecil B. DeMille of history painting, and this really is over the top. It's impossible to count the number of figures he has included, the architecture, and his depiction of the supernatural forces unleashed by God in the heavens is evidence of his avid imagination. The next and largest of the four British rooms focuses on portraiture, and most of the paintings in Gallery 59 are full-length grand manor portraits. All but two are pictures given by Mellon and his children or purchased with funds that they provided. This pair by Sir Joshua Reynolds faces off along the long walls of the room. Reynolds himself is also here in a portrait by Gilbert Stuart painted in 1784. Reynolds did not have any formal academic training, but he spent three years in Italy where he acquired a vast knowledge of classical and Renaissance art. He rose to become the first president of the Royal Academy in London, and he codified elements of the Grand Manor in his discourses, the lectures that he gave at the Royal Academy, which were collected and published in 1788. The Grand Manor is an idealized aesthetic style derived from classical art, and the term Grand Manor is typically used to refer to historical, mythological, or biblical scenes produced produced between 1500 and 1825. Raphael and Poussin were the great masters of the Grand Manor in terms of history painting, and their work was held up as an example by elite European academies of art as the fullest realization of academic theory. It was not until the 18th century that the term Grand Manor was applied to portraiture in England, and its characteristics are based in examples dating to the Renaissance. Reynolds worked from classical principles of design rather than observation of nature. No natural pose could possibly incorporate so many triangles as you find in the portrait of John Muster on the left. The triangle is the most stable shape. It was typical of Raphael's compositions as Reynolds knew well. The repetition of the triangle lends stability and order to the composition. Lady Delmay and her children are modeled after Raphael's Madonna in the Meadow from 1505, now in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna. The dog's tail assumes the form of the Madonna's foot. John Musters was a wealthy landowner. He liked to hunt, he was tall and athletic, and the pose that Reynolds chooses for him conveys the grace, confidence, and control of a wealthy landowner surveying his estate. 
The low horizon line allows the figure to dominate the landscape. The background is loose and sketchy so that the setting does not detract from the sitter. One of Reynolds' prescriptions for Grand Manor portraits was that, quote, each person should have the expression which men of his rank generally exhibit, end quote. His aristocrats all have a similar confident expression. He does not give a sense of his sitter's individuality, but instead conveys a generic noble grandeur. He considered any specific indication of a sitter's unique personal appearance to be a defect in a portrait. Reynolds also warned against too much detail in the setting that would distract the viewer. John Musters is a near-perfect example of Reynolds' theory of the Grand Manor put into practice, and on either side of him now hang works by two Americans who came to London to learn from his example. This is John Singleton Copley's Copley family from about 1776. Copley was born in 1738 in Boston, where he became the most accomplished artist in the American colonies. He left for Europe just before the revolution and never returned. This painting is hanging in the British galleries because, as Frank Kelly put it in a recent conversation with me about the decision to move it, quote, Copley was born a British subject and he died a British subject, end quote. Copley painted this portrait after he spent time traveling in Italy, and then he settled in London where his wife and children joined him in 1775. This portrait was Copley's presentation piece for the Royal Academy. It was an introduction of himself and his family to the London art world. Copley is the standing figure in the back. His father-in-law, Richard Clark, is seated next to Copley's wife. Clark was one of the Tory merchants who had consigned with the British East India Company to receive the tea that was dumped into Boston Harbor. Copley himself was directly involved in trying to negotiate peace before the Tea Party, but his efforts failed, and some of his wife's relatives were attacked by a mob. Richard Clark received death threats. Their situation had become untenable, and it was the political sympathies of Copley's wife's family that was the reason Copley never went back. Moving to London allowed Copley to pursue his ambitions as a history painter, and one of his massive historical works now hangs in the Tate Gallery in London. This painting is a group portrait that successfully integrates a large number of figures and also contrasts the ages and behaviors of its many participants, with the youngest child sits in the lap of the oldest person. The children act like children, squirming about, apart from six-year-old Elizabeth, who casts away her doll and performs the role of eldest calmly and rather grandly, posing in the center of the composition. Copley's brushwork indicates a transformation from his colonial style, which was hard-edged and which gave too much importance to fabrics and material goods. He demonstrates here that the satin of his wife's dress looks very different from a rug or from the transparent fabric of his daughter's dress. And yet, the various textiles are unified into the composition and don't compete for our attention or detract from the importance of the people portrayed. The setting for the portrait is imaginary. No one would put this kind of fine furniture and a rug outside on a porch. The setting is there to announce Copley's study of the European Grand Manor tradition, and the elaborate furnishings indicate the family's status.
The other American painting that moved into the British galleries in 1992, along with Copley's family portrait, is this one. This is The Skater by Gilbert Stuart, painted in 1792. And Stuart is the same artist who painted Sir Joshua Reynolds' portrait, hanging right next to this work. Stuart was born in Rhode Island. He trained with an itinerant portrait painter in Newport. And then he left for London just before the revolution, where he spent five years working as an assistant for Benjamin West, who went on to succeed Reynolds as the second president of the Royal Academy. The skater was Stuart's first attempt at a full-length portrait. And it is three inches taller than Reynolds' portrait of John Musters. The success of this painting when he exhibited it at the Royal Academy allowed Stuart to establish his own studio as a portrait painter in London. As he later said, I was suddenly lifted into fame by a single picture. William Grant is the subject of the portrait, and he was a Scottish lawyer. When he came for his first sitting with Stuart, he told Stuart that he thought the day was better suited to skating than for sitting for a portrait, and Stuart agreed. They went out to skate for a while, and when they returned to the studio, Stuart decided to paint Grant as if he were skating. Apart from the fur lapels and white shirt, Grant is dressed entirely in black and set against the gray of the ice, the muted trees of Hyde Park, and the cloudy sky with the towers of Westminster Abbey in the distance. Stuart concentrates our attention onto the face and hands through color and light. The sky lightens around the upper body, and while there are a few red details in the background, Grant's face and hands are the most prominent warm tones in the picture. Stuart adapted Reynolds' standing, cross-legged pose to the action of skating, attempting to incorporate a sense of movement into the grand manner. And yet, Grant maintains a genteel bearing, his arms crossed. He is not speed skating. Apart from his folded arms, his pose derives from the Apollo Belvedere, a Roman statue that Stuart would have known from a cast in West's studio. The title, The Skater, did not specify the sitter's name, although when this was exhibited, everyone knew who it was, and the portrait was praised for, quote, its striking likeness. It would be another decade before Stuart returned to America. Gainsborough painted this portrait of Elizabeth Sheridan, who was a famous soprano and the wife of playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan, several times, including two other full-length portraits. She is seen seated under a tree in the countryside, which she said she preferred to the city. She was once quoted as saying, God knows London has no charms for me, and if I could, I should like to rest in some quiet corner of the world and never see it again, end quote. This painting is a great example of Gainsborough's new romantic approach to portraiture. Her hair is let down, the loose brushwork of the figure extends into the landscape, her expression is wistful. As John Hayes, the former director of the National Portrait Gallery in London and the author of the systematic catalog for the gallery's British collection has written of this painting, quote, Mrs. Sheridan is at once a portrait and part of the landscape, end quote. Three of the other portraits now in Gallery 59 are ones which hung in Mellon's London residence while he served as the ambassador to Great Britain in the early 1930s. In the photograph, John Hopner's Franklin Sisters hangs above the mantelpiece, George Romney's Miss Willoughby is in the corner, and 
Sir Thomas Lawrence's painting Lady Templetown and her son is along the right wall, along with Goya's Marchese de Ponteos. Sir Thomas Lawrence succeeded Reynolds as principal painter to the king, and he was able to charge far more for his portraits than anyone else. Lady Templetown had four sons. This is the first of them, Henry, born in 1799. He was just a bit older than two when Lawrence painted him. And this portrait was one of the favorite pictures at the Royal Academy exhibition in 1802. George Romney's Miss Juliana Willoughby from 1781 to 83 is yet another great portrait of a child from Mellon's collection. Mellon's daughter Elsa was about six years old, the same age as Miss Willoughby, when Mellon purchased this picture in 1907. It is such a charming portrait, but it is sad too in that Miss Willoughby's mother died in childbirth. Romney started to paint her when she was four, and he finished her when she was six. During that time, he changed her hat from a child's mob cap to the one seen here, which was more fashionable but also more appropriate for an older child. She pulls the pink ribbon of her hat taut. The angle of the landscape behind her is echoed by the angle of her arm, and the stroke of brilliant blue at the lower left contrasts with the warmer tones of the picture and perhaps suggests water in the distance. There are also two great dashing portraits of men with horses and dogs in this gallery. Sir Henry Rayburn's portrait of Captain Patrick Miller is on the left. It is one of the two works in this gallery, not from Mellon's collection. It was a gift from Mrs. Pauline Davis in 1948. Captain Miller's uniform does not represent any of those worn by the various regiments with which he served. And in an earlier version of the portrait, Rayburn positioned the hat on Miller's left side wedged against the horse and not held in his hand. Moving the hat to Miller's other side and into his hand improved the composition considerably. Paul Mellon loved horses and also sporting art. Here he is on the right in 1978 after winning his fourth 100-mile ride when he was 71 years old. He gave most of his collection of British sporting subjects to the Yale Center for British Art and the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. The painting on the left was one of his favorite pictures, along with Cezanne's portrait of the boy in a red waistcoat, but he kept this one until he died in 1999. As we move on from Grand Manor portraits, George Stubbs' White Poodle in a Punt from about 1780 greets us as we enter the final room in the British section. This picture was also bequeathed to the gallery by Paul Mellon. Animal paintings are relatively rare in the Western tradition. I don't have much to say about this poodle other than to admire his ability to hold still and maintain his balance while posing in a boat. Stubbs is best known for his depictions of horses based on his study of horse anatomy through dissection. His portrait of Captain Pocklington, his wife and sister from 1769, is a typical Stubbs conversation piece that also happens to include a horse. Captain Pocklington's wife, Pleasance, offers flowers to her husband's horse. The woman on the far left is possibly Captain Pocklington's unmarried sister, Frances. Pocklington assumes the casual cross-legged pose of John Musters. The background is fanciful, and a screen of foliage extending from the tree at the left fills most of the sky. 
There are several conversation pieces in the British collection, and I'm showing you the earliest and the most recent that are on view so that you can compare the advances over a 40-year period. There are even earlier conversation pieces in the collection by Arthur Devis, who painted the work on the left in 1757. Devis was born in Lancashire. He studied in London and became successful as a portrait painter, producing conversation pieces of his fashionably dressed patrons set in landscapes. The seated figure in the portrait on the left is Arthur Holdsworth, who was governor of Dartmouth Castle. His brother-in-law, Thomas Taylor, is standing behind him. The man on the right is Captain Stancombe, dressed in the uniform of an officer in the Merchant Navy. He gestures toward a ship sailing up the River Dart in, in, in southwest England. Dartmouth Castle and the fortifications of the harbor are seen in the distance. The ship is painted very thinly with the under layers of paint now showing through, and this in no way qualifies as ship portraiture, an important subset of the British maritime tradition. Although the painting most likely celebrates the safe return of one of Holdsworth's ships by Captain Stancombe, the main focus is on the figures on shore. And yet the three figures don't interact in any meaningful kind of way. Sir Henry Rayburn's painting on the right dates to sometime around 1790, 1795. John Johnstone is seated at the far right. Next to him is his sister, Betty Johnstone, and they are listening attentively to John's niece, Miss Wedderburn, who is perhaps discussing the book that she is holding in her lap. This is a far more convincing representation of a casual connection between three figures who are actively engaged with each other. And then a final work dating to 1770, midway between the early and late conversation pieces by Devis and Rayburn, is this portrait of the seven Lavi children, along with their dog, painted by Johann Zoffany in 1770. Zoffany was born in Frankfurt. He moved to London when he was in his early 30s, and he became a British subject. He traveled extensively in Italy, but he died in England. Something becomes particularly evident in this room with Stubbs's poodle. There are a lot of dogs in the British collection. The ones at the far edge of the lake in Constable's Wivenhoe Park, and that's the detail in the center left, the upper detail in the center, these dogs are barely visible. They're mere smudges of paint, so they're difficult to count. There are two dogs in Turner's Mortlake Terrace with that other detail in the center at the top, and then all of these other paintings. In the gallery's current installation, there is a slightly less than one in four chance of a British painting including a dog. And as an interesting side note, the Dutch also liked dogs, and there are many dogs currently on view in the Dutch collection. Eric discussed a few of the more distinctive ones in his lecture. There are no cats in the British collection. This gallery also contains the other works in the collection which fall under the category of history painting. Both are subjects drawn from classical literature. Henry Fuseli, who painted this picture, was born in Zurich. He also traveled extensively in Italy before settling in London in his late 30s, and he spent the rest of his career there. The British collection is very uh, cosmopolitan. Oedipus cursing his son Polynices was painted in 1786, and this was another gift from Paul Mellon. It depicts one of several dramatic episodes in the story of Oedipus as told by the ancient Greek tragedian Sophocles. This part of the story occurs 
after Oedipus has blinded himself, horrified by the realization that he has married his own mother. Here he is refusing to take the side of his son Polynices at the lower left, who is plotting vengeance on his younger brother for usurping the throne and banishing him. Antigone and Ismene, the two daughters of this happy family, react to their father's words. Oedipus is screaming, away, you have no father here, vile brute. May you never return alive to Argos. May you in dying kill your banisher and killing die by him who shares your blood. This is my prayer, end quote. Oedipus gets his wish. Not surprisingly, being a tragedy, it doesn't end well. The outstretched arms of Oedipus and Polynices, the hands of Antigone who tries to reach out to both her father and her brother, the wild hair, furrowed brow, and unseeing eyes of Oedipus, and Polynices' hand held to his ear to stop his father's words, concentrate the action along a diagonal extending from the head of the father to the head of the son. The expressive drama and cold light of Fuseli's subject is in stunning contrast to this quiet, firelit scene of Joseph Wright of Darby's Corinthian Maid, painted in 1782 to 1784 and hanging on the adjoining wall. Both were gifts from Paul Mellon. This scene comes from Pliny, who tells the story of the daughter of a Corinthian potter. There is a glowing kiln and a number of vases seen in the room to the right. Two other large vases and yet another dog are positioned on either side and in front of the two figures. In an act that also constitutes the origin of painting, the Corinthian maid traces the outline of her lover's shadow on the wall to record his image while he sleeps. A second light source, the flame of an oil lamp that is almost entirely concealed behind the red curtain at the left, bathes the figures in warm light. Joseph Wright is the only painter in the collection represented by history painting as well as by portraiture and landscape. These two works by Wright are also on view, an elegantly dressed gentleman posed against a large rock, and this Italian landscape, which one Wright's scholar has described as, quote, an imaginary scene, half English, half Italian, where Roman villas have incongruously come to settle on Derbyshire hills, end quote. As John Hayes has noted, the treatment of the light is highly unusual, and the broad, flat areas of light and shadow on the rocks of the mountain in the background give the painting an almost abstract quality. It is certainly unlike any of the other landscapes in the British collection. The British galleries are organized, for the most part, by subject matter. And the installation also loosely follows a reverse chronological order, with the earliest pictures on view hanging in this last gallery. But there are a few more British paintings to mention. This is Joseph Blackburn's Portrait of a Gentleman from about 1760, and it is one of the paintings recently acquired as part of the Corcoran collection. Blackburn was born in England, and his earliest known works are the 20 or so portraits that he painted in Bermuda beginning around 1752. He then moved around New England painting portraits in Rhode Island, Boston, and Portsmouth before he returned to England in 1764. Blackburn was an important early influence on Copley, and the exquisitely rendered embroidery on the waistcoat in this portrait is evidence of Blackburn's similar interest in the careful depiction of detail in the costume of his sitters. 
Blackburn was born in London and he died there, but this work hangs in the American galleries as an example of the many portraits he painted while in America, just as the works that Copley and Stewart painted in London are hanging in the British galleries. We could expand the number of 17th century British works in the collection by including these three paintings by Sir Anthony Van Dyke, who was knighted by King Charles I in 1632. All three of these portraits were painted during the nearly nine years that Van Dyke spent working in London for the English court and the painting in the center is of the queen, no less. These paintings hang in the Dutch galleries where they make sense in the context of other portraits that Van Dyck painted of Italian, French, and sometimes even Flemish aristocrats during his long cosmopolitan career. Where an artist properly belongs in a collection installed by national divisions is an interesting question. There are two galleries in the French section that are devoted to small landscapes and sketches painted out of doors and where artists of many different nationalities are represented. This is a way of demonstrating the wide reach of plein air landscape practices throughout Europe and also in America in the 19th century. Three more British paintings, all relatively recent acquisitions, are on view in those galleries, and they are all works you don't want to miss. This is John Constable's Cloud Study, Stormy Sunset from 1821 to 22. Constable made over 40 of these small sketches of clouds in the 1820s and 30s. This is one that he did in Hampstead, north of London, where the open hilly terrain was a good site for studying clouds. He referred to his practice of going out to make cloud studies as skying. Constable was interested in the latest scientific studies and research on meteorology and atmosphere, and he often annotated his cloud studies, although not this one, with the time of day, the weather conditions, and the specific scientific terms from recent reports to identify the types of clouds that he depicted. Constable regarded the sky as, as he referred to it, quote, the chief organ of sentiment in landscape painting. His cloud studies were research for his studio productions, and they gave his finished works a foundation in observed effects. But he was primarily interested in clouds for their expressive power. This painting is just eight inches tall by 10 inches wide, and it is in gallery 92. This is Richard Parks Bonington's painting of the Grand Canal in Venice from around 1826. It's another small painting, only slightly larger than Constable's Cloud Study. Bonington was born in Nottingham, but he moved with his family to Calais and then Paris when he was 15. He studied at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and he had a brief 10-year career. He died in 1828 of tuberculosis when he was just 26 years old. In 1826, he spent four weeks in Venice where he made numerous drawings as well as works in watercolor and oil. This painting was most likely begun on site in Venice in pencil with the additions in oil added after he returned to London. And you can see the pencil quite clearly throughout the composition, but particularly in the details of the Rialto Bridge. Bonington manages to pack a tremendous amount into a small canvas, and the same is true of this next painting, which is also hanging in Gallery 91. This is John Ward of Hull's The Northern Whale Fishery, The Swan and Isabella, painted in about 1840. 
John Ward was from the northern city of Hull, an important commercial port and a center for whaling until the middle of the 19th century. Ward painted ship portraits and harbor views for ship owners and merchants, as well as whaling scenes such as this one set in Baffin Bay off the coast of Greenland. The two principal ships are the Swan on the left and the Isabella on the right, and they are rendered in exacting detail. These are ship portraits with three other large ships in the middle distance and four or five more along the horizon. Ward incorporates a variety of wildlife, including three seals on the ice flow in the foreground, narwhals spouting water, a pair of walruses who seem to be posing for their portrait, two pairs of polar bears, and another one that is about to be shot in the distance at the, at the left. This painting is tiny, and it's a great candidate for zooming in on the gallery's website. All of these details are taken from those zooms, and you can get much more of the detail if you blow them up. Um, and there are also seagulls that are hunting for whale flesh. Notice the details of the shadow cast by the seagull at the upper left here, and the reflections of the birds as they fly low over the water. The scene is teeming with whaling activity, as you can see in the details to the right on this slide. Men are loading strips of whale flesh onto the swan. A small boat with six men at the far left in the back is towing a dead whale. And men in another small boat are pursuing another whale near the Isabella at the right. The Isabella was destroyed in ice in Baffin Bay in 1835, and this was painted in 1840, so Ward's painting is a posthumous portrait of the ship Isabella. I will end with these two works by Thomas Charles Ferrer. On the left is Mount Tom, a promised gift to the gallery from John Wilmerding, and a pen and ink drawing on the right titled Sketching from Nature, also in the gallery's collection. Ferrer was born in London. He came to the United States in 1858 when he was 19. He painted these and several other works in New York and New England before he returned to London in 1869. The American Pre-Raphaelite exhibition called attention to the lack of any English Pre-Raphaelite paintings in the permanent collection, but you don't have to travel far to find good examples. The Delaware Art Museum in Wilmington has the largest Pre-Raphaelite collection in the United States and one of the finest outside Great Britain. Regardless of whether we consider Ferrer's works in a British or an American context, they add a new dimension to the gallery's collection, and Mount Tom will soon be back on view in the West Building. Thank you for coming today, and for those of you online, thanks for watching. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.